Welcome, 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 Flight Soup Friday podcast listeners. Good to have you back, Kenny. Good to see you. H12, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm excited to get everybody back into the uh, Commander Sanborn episode. Man, it was a good conversation. A lot of talk about risk, uh, what risk to take, uh, especially in the training environment. Um, you have a good holiday weekend? Yeah, I did. I did. What about you? Yeah, it was good. Uh, a lot of friends leaving, uh, transferring out for, I'm, I'm over there in the Navy side in Pensacola, but uh, had a couple of goodbyes and and now um, heading out to Ahars here soon. So should cool. be should be a good time. Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to Arches National Park uh, family vacation in February. So I've just been planning hardcore for that. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Yeah. Have you been out there? A couple times. Yeah, this will be my first time. We did, yeah. we've done like Zion and stuff, but we haven't been out to Arches. Yeah. I always say that Utah state parks are better than most of other states' national parks. So even if you don't go to a national park like Arches, it's, it's unbelievable. Nice. Well, we'll get started then. Uh, back into the interview and hope you guys enjoy it. One of the first times I ever met uh, Scott Sanborn was in my T course. Um, it is my, my last night water flight. So it's like the basic SAR check. Uh, we're, we're, heading out to the Solomon. We had had a couple of cancellations up to this point. So there's that kind of internal pressure to, to get, get the X, right. Got to get the X. Um, I believe all the 65 events had canceled because the weather was, was crap all day. Uh, my stick buddy was going out with, I want to say Neville Neal. Yep, thank you, right. Um, and so they were up, we're all up in the briefing spaces and they decided to cancel. So Neville Neal and my uh, stick buddy, they, they cancel. Uh, Sam Ward's like, well, we're, we're going, I don't know if we'll get the X, but we're going to go, uh, we'll give it a shot. We'll, we'll stick our nose into it. Right. Like I know flight mechs love that saying, <laughs> so we're going to go stick our nose into it. We decide to file or you decide to file. I was just along for the ride file over to Fairhope for the VOR. If we break out, we'll go, we'll take, take a peek underneath it. If we see the boat, great. Um, if not, then we'll just come IFR right, right back here and just get, get some instant approach training out of it. Okay, great. So we, uh, Neville Neal hears that we're going. He uncancels his flight. They're going. They're going to go out special V. My stick buddy was a, a, a Navy DCA. So they're heading out on the church and they're at like Ugh. a thousand feet or whatever, like right underneath the cloud deck. And, you know, it starts coming down as you start getting towards the base. So they're at 900, 800, 700, 600, 500 until... Love muscle is what we call the Mark Musil was like, Hey, sir, like, are there any towers on our route of flight? And he's like, uh, yeah, like let's, let's pull out the chart. And you know, he had enough hours where he's like, that is not an acceptable answer at night when the student's asking you like, Hey, where are the towers? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Pull out the chart. So they, they turn around, they come back. So we're IFR, uh, we're IMC. We're coming out. We actually break out. We see the bay. There's a little hole in the bay that looks great. So yeah, we go down, we start hoisting, uh, get up to like that 400 pound bingo, boom, flash. You're like, okay. And you're like, yeah, we're going to do two, two more, <laughs> you know, we're going to do two more and then, and then we'll call it. And I'm like, uh, Hey, sir, I'm like looking over towards the Eastern shore and there's just a wall of a fog, fog that's yeah. like slowly creeping in. I'm like, Hey, sir, like, what are we going to do? Like, there's this fog over there and you were pumped. You were like, yes, yeah, that, that is what you need to be doing as a co-pilot in the fleet. Like, I love it. And I'm still like, yeah, but there's this like giant wall of fog. Like, what are we, what are we doing? You're like, oh yeah, we're just going to do two more hoists and then we'll just finish up and we'll head back. I'm like, okay, great. Everyone's on board. Uh, Bing goes down to, to 300, uh, finish up the two hoists. We start to transition forward and kind of like, oh, everywhere we go, like fog. Like, okay. All right. 
well, there's this giant hole above us. It looks like it's clear. So we start doing like a right spiraling turn in this like little tiny sucker hole. I don't, I don't think we're in the clouds, but mm-hmm. everywhere else, I like, couldn't see yeah. anything on the instruments. For some reason, we couldn't get a hold of approach. So we talked to downtown tower. Uh, hey, we need, we're over the bay. We're basically in the clouds here. We need IFR clearance. Roger. They get it. We get up with approach once we get up, you know, 2000 feet. For some reason, there was this weird, uh, like, headwind so there was like 70 knots of wind and you're like talking to approach uh, and you're like yeah hey the closest you can get us to the final approach fix would be great you know because we don't really have a whole lot of fuel and they're like yep sorry feel this you know we're overcast at 400 like i can't legally can't get you closer than than two miles and so sure enough we we he's like yeah why don't you set up the ils so i set up the ils and i fly the ils we break out at you know 400 feet or so and you know at the time, I'm like, this is freaking awesome. Like, this is Coast Guard flying. This is awesome. And now looking back on it, I'm like, that was dumb. <laughs> like, I had no idea yeah. what I was doing. I was just a, I was just along for the ride, you know? Um, but yeah. I thought, and I think that's a good lesson. Like, I think the way we did it was awesome. I think- uh, Agreed. W- doing it safer. And I, I, when I was in Houston, a lot of times pilots would just defer to like, hey, I want to go special V. And mm-hmm. I'll be like, hey, no. Like, Why? I mean, like, I get it if it's right there, you know, off of the air station, but, you know, Houston is in, it's, you know, pretty landlocked. So you have to go quite a, quite a ways to get over and fog is nasty, you know, around there. So just like it is here, you know, so I would say if you can't, I mean, we have all these approaches and procedures to get to the water, go IFR and do an approach to the water or go to an, go to an ILS in an airport, you know, I mean, again, it, it depends on what you're looking at. I mean, if it's a solid, like 300 overcast, five miles of underneath, yeah, sure. Special PFR makes sense. Mm-hmm. But if it's really crappy out, you know, it just doesn't, what we did, I think was smart where it was not smart. When you said, Hey, it's bingo's flashing. We should have left. Yeah. You know what I mean? To give ourselves at least two approaches, you know what I mean? Or at least some margin of an alternate. And, uh, and you know, back in the, I think uh, Joe Matthews tells that story about me and Kate May, weather's crappy. And I just, I was like, Hey man, I'm not leaving until the bingo. And that was in the Bravo where like the bingo actually was accurate. You know, when it said go, it's time to go. And and the numbers actually meant something, Mm -hmm. you know, but, um, yeah, I've definitely been burned on fuel a lot, you know? And, and so I think that's definitely a lesson there is, man, leave yourself an out. So, um, so, so if I yeah. pulled the 65 community, where do you think on that scale? Where like, everybody else thinks I'm yeah, at? Where, where they think probably you're at. far to the right. Yeah. Probably yeah. too far to the right. And, 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 and a lot of times people have, you know, told me that. And, uh, some people told me that after the fact. So, uh, one of my flying legends there, Jason Gelfan, you know, he, he called me after my mishap and said, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you earlier, but I knew that was going to happen. You know, and he had like a conscience, like it was really bothering him, you know, because mm-hmm. he felt like he knew Dale's mishap was going to happen, you know? And, and he's like, I wish I had told you that ahead of time. Like you have a reputation for weather, you know? And, and, uh, and I didn't know at the time, you know, but looking back, I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. You know, that, 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 that was my reputation. So I, I didn't want that reputation that I was like foolhardy or reckless at all. Yeah. I feel like there's ways to train smart. And I think, uh, doing it IFR is, is, you know, as much as you can is, is one of those ways, but, uh, leaving yourself an out is definitely something that I've learned and still you know, it bit me uh, a couple months ago, flying night, night water, hoisting flight, thunderstorms in the area. Mm-hmm. We had a good gap. thought things were good. We were monitoring it and everything was fine. And uh, we did that one more hoist, you know, we probably didn't need it. It was just mins, you know, just, just go out there, do some, tra- not even mins, just, just proficiency. And um, we should have left earlier, you know? And so we ended up getting caught by some thunderstorms and didn't really have a lot of options. We're rolling up to the school at 
you know, special V conditions at the field. And we asked for the, you know, special V to come in and they're like, it's, what do they say? Extreme precipitation. And, you know, you can see lightning bolts all around and it's like, okay, so now we're gonna have to violate some rules because that's a thunderstorm. We're not supposed to fly in that. What are Mm -hmm. my options? I could turn around and land at St. Elmo and get clobbered by the same thunderstorm in 10 minutes. There's no facilities at St. Elmo. There's no fuel. There's no place to go hide. Downtown's getting clobbered and I have, you know, 300 pounds of gas. So Definitely not op- no options. So I'd say leaving yourself an option is, is key. And I think that's what we failed mm-hmm. to do that night. Yeah. So going going back to that that mishap, I think when that mishap came out and they're like, oh, who was that? Sanborn? Everyone was probably like, go yep. figure. Yep. yep. Go go figure, right? Um, do you think that it is other people's like responsibility, either within a wardroom or like a community to, to say something like had, had anyone at that point been like, Hey, I think you're pushing it too hard. Yeah. So if you think about like our just culture, you know, we look at, uh, the, the premises that we're going to make mistakes, right? Mistakes are normal. And I think mm-hmm. it's our job to, you know, support people that make mistakes. Right. And then there's people that have at-risk behavior. Right. And that's the, that middle area where you need to coach people back to into the fold. Right. And I think, uh, I had a lot of opportunities and, and I mean, you know, my ops boss probably back in Atlantic city tried to do that, you know, and kind of coach me back in the fold in the way that he knew how, you know, and it was always something that he, I thought about, you know, I was doing things in the aircraft, but, uh, with weather, I didn't, you know, I think the CEO might've asked me when I came back, Hey, what did you learn from this? And I learned a lot. I mean, that, that was definitely a uh, scary event, you know, that I thought about and I wrote, wrote a couple of town articles about just, uh, and I think I tried to change the way I did business a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shifted more into like, let me be aggressive with my training you know, and do some stuff that's, uh, hey, let me do AFCS off everything, right? Like, uh, let me hoist AFCS off, do approaches AFCS off. And I think a lot of people had issue with that, but nobody talked to me about it except Dennis Mulder. You know, I've been doing it for years and Dennis finally said, hey, just want to let you know, you're ex- you're exposing the crew to, he's like, you're fine doing this, but you know, like what's the gain? I'm like, oh, I'm getting like, hey, it's, it's very likely that the AFCS is going to fail. You know, any one of these channels, I mean, that's a mission to greater for us all the time. We should be able to do this. He said, yeah, you're right. But like for training, you could get the same value out of doing a dry run or, you know, doing it when the, when you're not committed. I'm like, man, that is ingenious. Absolutely. And I changed that day. I said, I'm not going to risk the crew anymore, you know, for just my value of training. I can get the same value out of doing a dry run. It doesn't matter. I don't care what device is down there. Mm-hmm. So um, little things like that, I think are ways you can still train hard without risking the crew, you know, or risking, you know, mishap. So uh, I wish other people, there was a plenty of people that thought that and I wish they had, you know, been willing to, wouldn't been willing to tell me, but I think a lot of that is as you get more senior and you guys are all, you know, getting, getting old and crusty too. Now people tell you less, they're less honest with you when you're senior. And then mm-hmm. that's as an 05, like people aren't going to tell you, Hey, sir, you're screwed up, you know, unless like Kenny would and Kenny has multiple times said, Hey, that's dumb. You shouldn't yeah. do that. Whether it's in the aircraft or just debriefing with a student or, you know, like just leadership stuff, you know, and I think that's, we all owe that to each other, you know, to be honest, you don't have to be mean about it. You know, my CEO in Houston, uh, Jim Spiller, he'd say, Hey, that was a failure. You just failed. He didn't get mad. He didn't, you know, rant and rave. He just said that was a failure. We just need to learn from it. I was like, man, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I don't let it, let dad down, you know, but oh, yeah. I'd rather know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's the just culture. Like, Absolutely. We have a responsibility to tell someone if, if we think they're putting people in danger, like, and you should be able to be approachable about it. You might not agree with that person. Sure. Like, well, I think you're too far to the left of that scale. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about it. Maybe, maybe you see things that I am not seeing right now. And we all have like different comfort levels. You have 6,000 hours as opposed to someone who has, you know, 750 hours sure. that just made an aircraft commander. Like, I don't expect them sure. to act like you do. Um, but I remember you saying one thing uh, one time. It was like, yeah, 3710. What's our weatherman's for our operational missions? Quarter mile. 
I don't care what the ceiling is. Like if you can see a quarter mile in front of you, you go get that mission done. Right. Um, and I remember you saying like, it's criminal to never let anyone fly in anything other than 502 until it's that storm. Yeah. And Oh, now, now go do it. Mm-hmm. You know? And you guys talked about this a little bit. I think you commander Walton in the, our first ever podcast mm-hmm. of like that risk. And there's a, a little piece where we all have to, you know, okay, we're going to give you some training, but absolutely a too much is too much, but Hey, um, and I bet you, I, I don't know if we pulled people, I'm probably slightly to the right of like aggressive safe training. Cause mm-hmm. it, it does drive me crazy when, uh, sometimes we do things that are so risk adverse that are right in our wheelhouse, but no one will bat an eye to do, you know, something else. And you're like that to me is not risk versus gain as opposed to this thing that I'm asking to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think it's good to, to, to have a healthy conversation of where does safe, aggressive training land? And I think it also depends on the AOR, right? Yeah. Um, hey, uh, we're going to go do rig landings. Like, have you ever had to do a rig landing in your AOR? No. Okay. Maybe that's not the, maybe you shouldn't be going and willy nilly going to do a night rig landing just mm-hmm. because you did one six years ago at Houston. So. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that, you know, to me, I look at training as preparing our crews to do what the mission is, right? So if the mission is to do a rig landing, to get fuel, to continue further, like most of the Gulf units, like that's something you should absolutely do and be good at. Mm-hmm. If uh, if you're in the Northwest, you should be really good at IFR departures and arrivals and managing, you know, flying through you know, terrain or whatever, whatever the mission is, right? Whatever you're getting asked to do, I think that's how we can expose our crews. You know, and I'm not saying throw them out there for like, hey, let's go do night vert surface in the goo. Like that's not what I'm saying because- you might have to do that on a case, but let's not start there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you talk about IMC, like, yeah, get get crews out there at a half a mile, go shoot some instrument approaches. As long as they have the mins, they can do it safely. Like, hey, we know we have a scripted plan to do this like you and I did that night, right? We had a scripted plan. It's very safe. Um, how do we do, hey, maybe, maybe you start off with some, hey, we're going to do some ramp hoisting. Or we're just going to like do some hover work on the ramp when it's crappy out. Hey, we're just, just to give you an idea of what it would look like, you know what I mean? And it's totally safe. Hey, daytime, you know what I mean? Just, just land. If it's, you know, you're mm-hmm. not going anywhere. You're not going to hit any towers or wires, um, but just gives that crew that exposure. So when they do find themselves on a case, they kind of know what they're getting into because often what happens is we don't let people do it. And then they go launch in that weather and um, they find that they can't do it because they just don't know what they're getting into. And they go to shoot that first catch. I mean, I have only shot, I think one operational catch. I've shot a lot of eyes, face letdowns, few matches, but you know, I'll probably one operational catch and man, I got to the bottom of that catch and we didn't see the water and we pre-briefed 30 feet and we needed all, we needed those 30 feet to get mm. able to see the water. Yeah. And we never saw the boat. We saw the wake of the boat and we followed the wake until the, the radar blip disappeared. And that was not a fun feeling. I mean, I was just a co-pilot. I was an aircraft from at the time, but I was a co-pilot with another 6,000 hour guy that I felt very comfortable with. But uh, man, I'm glad I saw that with him and not by myself the first time. Because I think a lot of crews get down there, like that humble crew that goes out in Shelter Cove and they shoot approach and they don't break out and they shoot another approach. Man, getting to the bottom of an approach and not breaking out is an important thing to see. And I think we do it in the sim. And I think we can use the simulator safely to do that, to show people, um, to make that decision. Or maybe you can kind of see like like your case. You had that case uh, in the fog, you know, and like that's a great way to do it, you know, but again, being comfortable in the environment, or at least not necessarily even being comfortable, but being exposed to it. So you kind of can make those decisions. Uh, if you haven't been exposed to it, it's hard to make those decisions on the fly when you're in the mm-hmm. middle of it, especially yeah. when there's people screaming on the radio or you're seeing flares getting shot off. Yeah. I think that's the key right there is like, Hey, maybe there is like a little patch of fog. Talk to your ops and be like, I want to go shoot a catch into that fog. And then we'll come back completely VFR because there you could get halfway through that thing and be like, I'm very uncomfortable. We're going to terminate this or get yeah. down to 50 feet and be like, 
oh man, this is this would be scary without the um, pressure of knowing that like sectors asking you to go out there. You've already talked to ops. He's like, yeah, go do it. We need you to get these people. Um, just the exposure of that, absolutely, uh, I, I think is is huge. Absolutely. I think that is where we can buy down some of that risk by investing early when there's no stress, right? It's all training. We could abort anytime, but you're, you're dabbling into what are shooting our wheelhouse. Like you said, like shooting an approach to 30 feet is in our dash one. It is in our wheelhouse. So I would show people regularly like, Hey, let's shoot a match to 50 feet. And then I want you to come down to 30 feet to see how much closer that is to the waves. Mm-hmm. You know, we're VFR. Yeah. We're just doing it just to see. If you haven't done that, you should try it, you know, and see, uh, this yeah. isn't, this isn't, maybe it's not, again, it just exposes you. So, you know, I am either willing to do that on a case or I'm not, you know, uh, doing it ahead of time. And that's what the, the beauty of this air traffic control assigned airspace is with the ADCA. And I know it's kind of become a dirty word around here because most people probably think it's crazy and would never do it. But the, <laughs> the premise is, you know, with air traffic control in Houston, we did it because we needed a way to get to most of our SAR, which was in the Bay. And so I, I asked air traffic control, hey, how can I do this? We have Coast Guard procedures that allow us to shoot an approach to the water, but I need to be able to get below your minimum vectoring altitude. And we kind of agreed to this, probably not as intended use of this assigned airspace, but it's basically a block of airspace to the surface. And it, we signed an MOU to said, hey, we're willing to accept the risk of hitting things as long as you keep other people around, you know, away from us on IFR mm-hmm. procedures. And so we were able to shoot approaches to the bay and uh, in the goo uh, for training and for operational missions. Yeah. And that was a huge win in Houston because they, they're having to do it. And I brought it here to Mobile and we got it signed and approved and used it a bunch, um, not to do missions, but more just as a template so other people could see it and use it and be comfortable with it. You know what I mean? For like, hey, Kenny and Sam are going to go out and hey, it's a it's 502, you know, above training men, joining off talk to ops, go hoist with a solemn, you know, go file, do an approach to the water and it's there it's for nice you. You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just another tool, you know, yeah. is it perfect? You know, no, but uh, there's, I, I think, again, those are just ways I think to buy down risk and expose crews yeah. to what they might see on a, on a case. And again, we don't have the operational thing here unless it's a hurricane and when that point, it's usually not that. Yeah. yeah. Not far, I mean, but. We talked about using the SIM, but it doesn't have that mortal fear piece right. that, that you just cannot duplicate. Mm-hmm. And um, we went out uh, with another, another, uh, you know, aircraft commander here and, Downtown was calling like 200 and a quarter or hundred and a quarter. I'm like, let's go do the ILS yeah. over there. Let's let's not break out. I want to fly it by hand mm-hmm. and I'll be damned if I got like towards like the decision altitude and I had to like physically push mm-hmm. down on the collective to get myself to yeah. the altitude. When you see that rat out going 400, 300, nope. <laughs> 350, 300, 250. And I'm like waiting to hear like I'm visual, like, and it never happened. Yeah. And, and that was a, um, kind of an eye-opening thing talking about like, hey, I feel like I'm a little on that right side. There might, there have been people that are like, I'm not going to go do that approach. Like there's no way we'd break out. Why would I, why would I do that? I personally am glad I did mm-hmm. so that I could see it Absolutely. because um, like, okay, if I had to and my flight director was working, I could take this thing to TF capture. I'm sure that we could have safely landed sure. the aircraft, but without a flight director, I was working hard yeah. and I don't know that we ever actually got to DA because I was like, oh man, I just couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't and do then also thing. when you hear the execute missed approach, like that's not a lollygagging, um, let me think, you about know, it, right? Oh, let me pull like 6.5. Like, no, the ground is rushing towards yeah. you and you can't see it. Like you better start climbing. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think, I think this is a really good discussion that should probably happen more often than it does. And it's, it's not always easy to tell in 05 with 6,000 hours that, you know, I, I think you're messing up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah. it's just, I had at-risk behavior, you know, I had, uh, I love weather. I love flying in bad weather, you know, and, and have it to me, it's a challenge, you know, but again, 
you need to have outs and you need to have a ways. Like I said, doing that smart, we would go in Houston all the time down to Galveston file in the fog and just shoot some approaches. We wouldn't break out on the ILS. And it was awesome to see and show crews that, but they always had an out get back to yeah. Ellington and they could, cause it was like 703 mm-hmm. or something there, you know? So how are you, how do you think you're going to be able to keep yourself in that center scale? Um, now that you're going and single pilot, nobody cares what you do or, or don't do, or another pilot sitting next to you to be like, yeah, I don't think that's what Well, we the good thing right you now. have is the med crew in the back yeah. that'll tell on you and you'll get fired. <laughs> so I think just knowing that and having, I mean, it's the same crew research. I mean, they're not pilots, they're not, but they are, they've been doing this mission a long time and they, yeah. they get it and they understand. And, and, uh, so I think having those guys as kind of your QA in the back, not that they're going to, you're not going to ask them like, Hey, what do you guys think? Like you're supposed to have the answers, make the decisions, but um, I think that's part of it. I think, uh, you know, I think my, my GA flying over the years, you know, I thought back, uh, I flew out to ever, um, enterprise to pick up one of my kids from my, uh, my mother-in-law's house one night in a Cessna and, and the weather forecast wasn't awesome. So I was trying to turn around quick and get back before the fog rolled in and I didn't make it. You know, by the time I got back, you know, Jack Edwards was IFR, Pensacola's IFR guys are going around, going to their, you know, through their alternates. And uh, I check in to get the weather here at uh, regional. And then, uh, you know, I could see downtown airport. I mean, the fog was around, but I could see the airport. I could have Mm -hmm. easily canceled and just landed there. I was like, man, that's going to be a hassle. Now I got to Uber back to my house. And yeah, it's just a hassle. I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, I'm going to give the approach a shot. And um, they told me Delta had just gone missed going to Shreveport. I'm like, oh boy. So the commercial guys are going missed. He's like, hey, but I, you know, they're also doing a buck 40 on approach. You know, I'm only doing 70 knots. So I think I might have a chance. And so I was setting up for the RNAV approach. And uh, the it was right at Mins. And the problem with the Coast Guard, like, you know, we can continue that approach. You know, we still have to have the legal mins to land, but right. like, you know, we could shoot the approach below mins. Well, as, as, a, as a civilian, you, you can't do that. So I was like, okay, crap, I need to think about the right rules that I'm using. And then I also have to consider, uh, you know, you know, am I really going to break out on this RNAV approach? You know, and so the, the other regional carrier came in and they were asking for the ILS. And so I was number one for the, the RNAV approach, but they offered the regional guys the ILS opposite direction. I was like, hey, I'll take that because that'll get me another 200 feet down. Yeah. You know, and that's what we ended up doing. They broke out at Mins and I broke out at Mins. The bummer is I still needed two night landings for my uh, proficiency. So I had to go out another night because I was not going to take it around. I another, thought you were just about <laughs> to say you're going to take it around. Do uh, one. But, uh, you know, my just, son just is. Skip, skip the yeah, landing. Skip, I, I thought about that. You know. I probably bounced twice, but it's supposed <laughs> to be two full stops, three full stops. So, you know, I look at my son. He's like, you know, snuggle up in his car seat next to me. He's probably three at the time, mm-hmm. you know, and I just. Not a care Tucked in him in real tight, not a care. And he's out, out cold, you know, as my yeah. co-pilot. He's not going to call my decision altitude. None of these aircraft have, you know, a little decision highlight that's going to come on. It's yeah. just, you know, just using the ADI. And uh, I mean, we broke out. It was fine. But I, but I was like trimmed up. This is going to be the best ILS I've ever shot, you know? And, and I, you know, it was, but again, you ask about like, hey, do I have any personal mins? And I think a lot of these companies ask that, you know, and they should be definitely higher than the FAA rules. And I've not really thought of that. You mm-hmm. know, I don't, I would say I don't, I've always just used the FA rule, whatever the rules are, that's my men's. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's a good place to be. I think I need to probably bump that up a little bump bit. Yeah. I, I'd, uh, back to the aggressive training and spe- specifically in Houston or as an ops boss, did you ever have anybody give you a training idea that you're like, you know what, that's, that's too risky. Um, I mean, cause you probably, I mean, you've ingrained that culture sure. in, you know, half a dozen, dozen pilots that are now in the fleet. No, I mean, we had a lot of good ideas bubble up for that the focus on proficiency program, our FOPS, you know, and yeah. a lot of the times that was the best ones because that was the things the crews wanted to do and train, you know, and whatever they thought was valuable. We assign like a JO and maybe a, 
a FEB member from the hangar deck to kind of put it put it together. But I don't I don't think they came up with anything that was really crazy. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of pilots that like really pushed some of the weather sometimes and it made me a little uncomfortable with thunderstorms. Um, where they were like willing to launch. I was like, oh, I don't really think it's a good move. And a couple of times I said no. A couple of times I said yes. And it, it always turned out okay. But it, thunderstorms were the thing there that really kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies, you know. Will you have a um, like a chief pilot or, or cadre of pilots sure. at your new job that you'll talk about? Each base has decisions? four pilots. And uh, you, I, unfortunately, you probably only see the pilot you're flip-flopping with, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and you might see the other guys too here and there. But um, So it's a pretty small community. But there is a regional manager that's kind of your ops boss. And I think he oversees several of the bases and okay. kind of acts in that role. So He's the one you had I to I think you, talk you would to. talk to, yeah, check in with him. I think like a lot of this is automated with their like dispatch you know, so like you fill out your risk assessment and it'll be a lot of it's canned, you know, I have so many hours, so much time, it'll mm-hmm. be probably fairly conservative to start, you know, as I'm getting into the industry. But, um, you know, when the weather comes up, then you're just like, okay, this is the weather. And they send off your risk assessment. I think they give you a green light to go after that. So, yeah. I mean, you've had, um, changing gears, you've had a long story career, obviously flying almost 6,000 hours in the Coast Guard. Um, you got to have some favorites, Maybe favorite training flights, favorite SAR cases. Man, I thought me- about meaningful that. Meaningful ones. I, I would say there's a couple that jumped to mind. Uh, first off, I missed Katrina. I was supposed to, uh, they called me to go. I didn't hear the phone ring and I got the message the next morning and it was too late. They'd already sent some. Oh, else. that's so that, tough. That really bummed me out. <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, you know, if you weren't at Katrina, you weren't flying because there was no hours. It was the end of the fiscal year. And so we were just watching them on the news and it killed me. That could have been me, right? Yeah. Um, it was probably good humility lesson for me that like, you know, I probably would have gone down there and done something stupid, you know what I mean? And landed wheels up or something. So <laughs> it was probably a good thing. I didn't end up going. Um, I ended up getting diverted on a SAR case, single pilot in a, in a Hudson river for a plane crash just up there, you know? Uh, and so that was a really cool case to get kind of as a consolation prize that here, you know, uh, getting to rescue someone that actually was going to die if we didn't find him. Mm. And I didn't have a swimmer, you know, and, uh, it, you know, because it was in New York city, it got a lot of press. It was like being filmed live, you know? So that was kind of a neat, neat, uh, neat star case. It was probably one of the cooler ones. When I got to Port Angeles, I had a couple of, uh, really good mountain cases that were fun. Mm-hmm. And that kind of prompted the mountain training, um, because we were in the environment, we're getting asked to do it. And so instead of having all these like low frequency, high risk events, we thought, Hey, why don't we expose the crews in a aggressive, but safe way to the, to the environment they're flying in. So we would go and do wind and terrain analysis. We, I think we only used maybe 2000, 2,500 feet, found a great hill that was close, very practical, just exposed crews to that risk. And man, they found that on those cases that they had doing a 150 foot cliff rescue, again, it wasn't easy, but, uh, they were glad they'd seen it at least once, mm-hmm. you know, um, to expose them to the things to be thinking about, Hey, how's the basket going to react when the rotor wash hits it and hits the cliff and spins it around and, um, and so we, we did it, I think we did it smart. We had the swimmers like hike in and they were roped in already. So we weren't, weren't hurting a swimmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would just do basket hoists, you know, grab a couple of flight max and do that. But, but that kind of prompted that. And I, I think it's great training. I think they still do it and they, they've taken it to the next level. They're doing like snow landings at 6,000 feet on top of the ridge up there. And wow. so again, I think those are just ways to crawl and keep that fresh. But again, those are very memorable cases. I mean, there was a lot of good SAR cases out in Port Angeles. A lot of them weren't rescues just because the boat would usually beat you to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 45s were everywhere. But um, one of the coolest things I did recently was uh, in Atlantic City, we were supposed to do some urban SAR on their stand visit and both bus facilities that they had weren't, uh, weren't available. And so, and the weather kind of sucked too. Shocker, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went and did uh, a SAR check up in New York and the co-pilot I was flying with uh, knew 
somebody that kind of, I remember looking at the ramp saying, Hey, if we can't get these facilities, ask ops, if we can go hoist to that 747 over there, because they had like a, you know, the fire department used it for fire training. And, and I was, I, I thought for sure ops was going to say no, but he's like, no, if you can get permission to use it, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that is awesome. So fortunately the co-pilot, uh, he knew the guy and we got permission after his star check, we landed for fuel up at, uh, I think it was a layer airport. Yeah, or up in Monmouth, and uh, we got permission. And again, the weather was crappy, so we're like, "Hey, we want to check out the facility on the way back just to see it." And we filed an IFR flight plan anyway to have it in case we needed it. Mm-hmm. And man, we needed it. We got about halfway there, and we just had to say, "Hey, guys, this, we just we can't go any further." So we got our IFR clearance, shot the approach into Atlantic City, and then we'd already coordinated with the tower to let us go hoist. So we hoisted a swimmer down to a seven forty seven, just to, again like Urban Star, and it was great training. You know, it wasn't a building, but it's elevated, you know, yeah. so all the skill sets of high hoist, uh, using kind of the rifle sight method to keep yourself stable over this. We hoisted to the cockpit, to the, to the wing, to the tail fin. Uh, there was an L-1011 over there too. So I think I did a hoist, uh, left seat to the s- number two engine of the L-1011. That didn't go well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just cause I couldn't see, I didn't have any references going that way. So we, I was like, Hey, we need to change this up a little bit. Let's spin around. I'll take the tailwind and I'll look at this building in front of me and that's better references, you know? So we just did it with a tailwind, you know, but, um, it was awesome. It was, yeah. a, it was a great training event. And what it did was it showed, Hey, now Atlantic city, if, if you can't get the train facility, see if you can get the 747. It, it's not as good, but it's close and it's right there. So you can do it all the way down to 250 pounds of gas and just cut across the ramp and land, you know? Yeah. I think the tailwind uh, comment's interesting. Cause I feel like, uh, and it might just be me. Um, like we never land with tailwinds. We never hoist with tailwinds. We don't necessarily train with tailwinds, but it's very probable that you're going to come along a case where you got to accept it. And why we don't do that. I mean, maybe that's one of the touch up areas that I need to start working on just, even if just running landings with the tailwind, but yeah, we had, uh, it was, I think it was Ryan and I, um, hoisting with Solomon and we had some really good wins, maybe third, 20, 25 knots of wind, almost 30 knots of wind. And, uh, we're having a hard time getting the trail line down there. And I, and I had done this in Port Angeles in the past where I was like, Hey, let's, you know, we can't get the trail line on there with a headwind. Let's spin around and do it with a tailwind and see if we can float the trail line right to the boat. And it was super easy. And, um, so we tried it with the Salmon and it was different, but it worked, you know, we did a bunch of different hoists that way. You know, the thing you have to think about is like, okay, my power is good, mm-hmm. but I can't go, if I have an engine failure, I'm not, I'm not doing what I normally do. And that's, what's key about that hoist brief is saying, Hey, what's different about today? What, what's different is I'm not going forward. You know, so my, all my instincts are, if I have an engine failure, I'm going to put the nose down. You just can't do that. In fact, if we had an engine failure, we were basically just going to pedal turn out to the right and in the wind, you know, that was, was kind of our out. And we had plenty of wind, plenty of power margin to do it. Um, but, uh, wouldn't you want to go left? Pedal? Yeah. I was going to think left. Um, you going left pedal. Left yeah. Pedal. I mean, you could do left pedal as well. <laughs> I think just cause I was in the right seat. I think it's probably what I was thinking. Oh, about. Yeah. But, uh, did you guys come into a hover and then do a pedal turn into the tailwind? I, th- I can't remember what we did. No. So I was going to jump in cause that was one of those situations where I was like, Sam, not a lot of like tailwind flying or hovering and stuff like that, a little bit to train and stuff. But I was glad to have seen that because there were a couple of big takeaways that I had. One of them was when we flipped around into the wind, we got a little bit slow yeah, and we lost more altitude than I was expecting or ready for. And, and power was coming up. And- yeah. Power is coming up and kind of flipped around to the right. And, um, and I think that just if we had talked about it a little bit better, maybe we would have come around to the left or kept the speed up and then slowed into the tailwind. Um, and we knew power margin into the wind, we could hover single engine. So that was also part of our single engine like conversation of like, we know we can hover OEI high if we just flip around. 
And so that was part of the conversation of, I think it didn't matter as much as long as we could just get ourselves into the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, but really eye-opening for me of some of those small lessons learned of how we got into that situation or the trail line, it made it so much easier. So some of those little things, but also good conversations in hindsight of how to get into that spot. Um, I valued that flight in that sense for sure. Yeah. I think we tried to spin the boat around a little bit too with the rotor wash. I don't, and didn't I work. We yeah. couldn't do it, you know? Um, and so that was good to see. I think that's always little, little skills that are good to practice when yeah. you have the time. So yeah. It's interesting. If you had a magic, if I gave you the magic wand, I'm like, Hey, how would you improve Coast Guard aviation? Oh, I mean, Coast Guard aviation is pretty awesome. I think, uh, what we get to do is awesome. The mission is awesome. The air crew are fantastic. The training is good. Um, I just think we need to take advantage of those opportunities in each AOR. And I always try to tell each unit when I do stand visits that, you know, like think about what those cases are like humble. I just was out there for their safety stand down and, um, you know, they do these mountain rescues of these firemen, you know, and, and they are starting to train with them, you know, but I would say like, that's a perfect thing. You know, if you're getting asked to do these things, you know, start by like going, go hoist at 4,000 feet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't, I mean, again, you're going to go do this on a case. So it started during the day, you know, find an area where you could train with those guys and bring them, involve them as a partner agency to say like, Hey, come down here and tend this litter, you know, and then put the swimmer down there as if you're doing a case. Uh, North Bend has been doing a good SARX program for a couple of years. And, um, and they do that stuff, you know, with some of their partner agencies. And so yeah. I think if they, if more units could do that, and, and it takes, it takes effort, right? There's, I mean, we always have data calls and OERs, awards, paperwork, right? And so it's hard to want to do something above and beyond. Uh, I know Savannah's working really hard on getting an urban SAR program together. And, you know, uh, I think it's Chad Purdue's been putting a lot of effort into making that work. And um, it takes time. It takes a lot of effort, but I think it's worth it. I think those are the things that, that's why we're all here. And it's going to make our crews so much better when they get exposed to that stuff for training and they can buy down that risk instead of, having to do it for the first time, you know, I mean, who would have known they'd be landing on the side of an overturned boat? I mean, so you can't, you can't imagine, Hey, we need to start doing this for on a regular basis. No, that's not something we need to do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Humboldt, they land on the beach all the time to pick people up. I'm like, Hey, how many of your pilots have landed on the beach? I mean, there's an element of risk there, right? There's some, but, but maybe it's worth do like a, a beach fam and you just cycle through one aircraft through landing on the beach 15 times, you know, just so people have done it at least once yeah. if that's, if that's your thing. So I think I wish, I wish people would units and commands. And I think commands are getting more and more supportive of that. Um, in our community, we're the only community with like the abort mission. I think that has been something that is, has taken over over the last couple of years where people are realizing that abort mission is not a landing criteria. It's, uh, it's something that says, Hey, you shouldn't just, you should just go home now. Like mm-hmm. stop doing what you're doing. You should go home. So if you land with it, with that type of criteria, you're totally justified to, take back off. You can make a phone call if you want, but you're not stuck there. And I think that mm-hmm. has started to permeate our community, which is good, I think. So. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because you spent your career in the cockpit for every tour um, and, and you got leadership positions uh, here at the division and as an ops boss. Do you think that you know, the way the Coast Guard leans towards um, continuing to promote with having a staff assignment and um, getting uh, advanced education, is that uh, really important in making good leaders from an ops boss perspective? Is there, um, where's the balance with somebody with that background versus somebody like Kenny over here who is, you know, he's on his fourth tour and has a lot of experience and a lot of respect in the aviation community and similar to yourself. So I think, uh, you know, the Coast Guard's got, uh, a certain economy, you know, and the economy is to promote leaders, right. And to, and to continue to, you know, keep the organization moving forward, you know, and I think, 
it's unfortunate you know, for the units that, uh, that that becomes a requirement because I think I was a good ops boss because of my operational experience. Mm-hmm. Where I was not helpful was managing paperwork, right? Like I think I really struggled managing email and the volume email I was getting, managing, you know, giving good career advice for people that are looking for what's the Coast Guard value. I mean, I knew all the right answers. The right answer, yeah, you need grad school, you need a staff tour to get promoted. And, and that's what the Coast Guard values because they want to see, they don't, yeah, they want you to be a good ops boss, but they want you to be a good ops boss so that you can be a good CO. They want you to be a good CO so you can be a good flag officer. And uh, I think you, as a CO, for sure, you would probably disadvantage your unit if you had never had that experience because mm-hmm. you would be frustrated and not understand why the admiral was wanting you to do why, your unit because you'd never been there. You didn't understand the nonsense of the, the building, you know. Um, but I think at the ops boss level, uh, like the EO level, for example, like there's no expectation. I don't think, you know, that an EO has been through ALC mm-hmm. until after they've done maybe their EO tour, depending on, you know, what, how their career is, has gone through. So I feel like at the ops boss level, um, you'd be better. F- I think you'd be more beneficial to have someone that's been in the cockpit that mm-hmm. is a true professional. But I understand like that is a pre-command that now that it gets wasted for a guy like Kenny, who'd be a great ops boss, that's where he would terminate, right? He'd be an ops boss and then he would punch out, yeah. you know? Um, and so then that's a, it's a great career enhancing billet that is now wasted. And I think the Coast Guard just doesn't want to waste that. Yeah, I've got back and forth a lot because my next career progression is absolutely staff tour and I should be doing grad school on my own. But um, that would mean that I would possibly be out of cockpit for six years and then come back as an ops boss that only has 1500 sure. hours flying to 65. And most of my IPs, cadre have more hours than me. and. Not that that is a bad sure. thing, but as a chief pilot, I feel like there's just a, you know, sense of additional, you know, respect or knowledge base that you would have coming into that tour with just an extra flying experience, an extra flying tour. So yeah, no, that's a challenge. I think for a lot of ops bosses that go in that sit, you know, they come through their recall and they're definitely behind the aircraft. Things have changed a lot of times if they've been out six years, especially those folks are struggling to. Hey, the EFB is new. The, the glass cockpit is new. A lot of stuff in the 3710 has changed. They're flying maybe a different aircraft or they haven't flown this model of the 65 before. So I think uh, it's a challenge. And then you're also jumping into a very busy job, you know, and I didn't have to worry about that. I knew the mission, I knew the aircraft. Now I just need to, I had to learn all the, the part about being a part of the command now. Mm. So, but, um, so like I said, it's a challenge. I, I think in those cases, most of those ops bosses, like our current ops boss, right? I think he does a great job of, you know, realizing, where he's, where his skills are and what his job is and, you know, um, relying heavily on his AOPSs. You know, I think a lot of units are doing that, especially at, at a place like I was in Houston where I had a very small, the smallest air station. I had, you know, 12 duty standards. So for me, it was, uh, really easy to manage, you know, but man, Clearwater, you know, Keith Blair out there managing C-130s, which he's never flown before. 60s that he's never flown before. He's got to rely heavily on his AOPSs, you know, that know the aircraft, know the mission. And I think he was, he did a great job, you know, but it's just a different role that you would play. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to see how the landscape um, might change. And this is just me speculating, but from what I've heard, it sounds like there are a lot of O5s that have turned down fellowships and grad schools and they're like, nah, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's COVID related where people are starting to value um, their family time more, or if this is kind of a tipping point for the Coast Guard. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next five years to see if, um, you know, the Coast Guard is like, nope, we still want to see people progressing with um, constant advanced education mm-hmm. and staff or or if that changes. I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty solid playbook that's been in place for a long time. And I think, you know, in my situation, I was fortunate that I think I was the only guy that was, you know, there was three ops boss jobs open and I was one of the few that had been an IP and that was something Admiral Papp had put in place as a requirement, you know, or, or OPM did it or 7-Eleven did it at the time. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, fortunately we haven't had a mishap in a while, you know, but I think that was after, I mean, we had so many mishaps after those years. So I think the only reason I was competitive for that position was because of at the right timing, I would never make 05 today with, mm. with what I've done. Never, you know? Um, so I'm grateful that I, that I did, but I think what it does is it forces a lot of good people to have to choose. What do I want to do with my life? Mm-hmm. And what do I, what should I do? And often it's like, well, do I want to make 05 and take care of my family or make 06? And a lot of times at that level, people do some uncharacteristic things because of their kids. They know their kids are maybe in high school and they're like, Hey, I'm done moving around you know, at the 06 level. You're doing one, two year tours and moving, moving, moving. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of those are very fun positions. I mean, a CEO of, of an air station would be fun. Um, but what's after that? Well, I'm probably going to headquarters or a district job, you know, and mm-hmm. again, maybe that would be fun if that's what you're in for. I just, I think it's not bad that the, the Coast Guard values that stuff. I just think you just, I would always encourage people to look, look long-term. What do you want to do when you're done with the Coast Guard? Because it's fast. I mean, it, I mean, it seems long at the time when you're doing OERs, but man, it's 20 years went by pretty quick, you know, mm-hmm. and there's still a lot of work time for me. I mean, I got a lot of little kids. So I'm going to be working until I'm probably 80 <laughs> just to get them. I'll be, I'll be 60 when my youngest is out of the house. So yeah. I'm going to be working for a while. And so most of my work will hopefully be flying. That's what I want to do. Cause from that first flight into TH 57, I was hooked and I didn't want to do anything else. Yeah. And so I knew I had to keep flying. So I, you know, I just chose to put my effort into all my flying quals and, you know, ratings and stuff like that. And, 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 you know, for those who want to do something else, like, Hey, this is fun, but I want to get into business or leadership or, man, there's tons of opportunities out there. That's where the money is. If you really want to do something like that, there's definitely more money into leadership positions. So, mm-hmm. and any of you guys that's been in, in the Coast Guard doing any leadership at all are going to get tons of opportunities just because of that. So. Yeah. it's a great point. Well, um, you got any other good questions there, Kenny? Yeah. Um, you've been around for a long time. You've probably heard a lot of good advice from a lot of people throughout your career. What would you, what would you tell our most junior pilots in the Coast Guard and then, uh, us old water buffaloes over here, uh, as far as going on? Yeah, that's funny. Uh, so it's funny looking back, you know, you look at, uh, people ahead of you and say like, Hey, what do I want to do with my career? Right. When you're new JG or just coming out of flight school. And for me, I looked around my wardroom and I saw my CO and he was a nice guy, you know, 06, but uh, he was not proficient, never flew. You know, I think he was hovering on the ramp at like the, you know, New Year's Eve, just try to get his 24 hours of flight time because mm-hmm. it was too foggy to do anything else. And I was like, that's not who I want to be. I looked around those 6,000 hour, 5,000 hour IPs. I was like, that's, that's what I want to be like. I want to be that guy in the wardroom that knows everything that there is to know about the 65. So I made that my goal. And um, I would say just look and see like, hey, what are your goals? I had a great CO there in Atlantic City, Captain Hubbard, and, and he called it the four Fs. You know, it was kind of focusing and I was like, oh boy, this is going to be interesting. But it's like, you know, family, you know, faith, family, I think, and then flying and fun. You know, he's like, if it stops being fun, you know, it's time to go. And um, so for me, that's that was it. Like I knew coming back here, this is where the fun stopped for me. And so I knew mm-hmm. it was time to retire. Um so the other piece of advice I would say is don't, uh, don't ever miss a training opportunity. You know, every flight, whether you're doing a patrol, uh, just transit and route, do some training, do something for you. You know, when you come in, you got to land anyway. So my very last flight in the Coast Guard, Eric Purdue and I went out there and we landed on about seven different hospital pads. We, uh, no, Kenny, we didn't fly the beach for, for <laughs> two, two and a half hours. We did a little urban SAR, did some basket hoist to the, to the Daphne firehouse. Um, what else? We filed the ADCA. 
you know, show, show to Commander Purdue the ad cast, you know, because he'd never seen it before. And of course, it was a gorgeous day. I didn't need to, just more for just going through the motions. And then on my last landing, I had him give me a cut gun, you know, just use those last, use every last, I mean, you don't have to take the demins fuel, you know, but but do something for you on every flight. Like be a better be a better pilot, be a better mechanic, challenge yourself, just think of different ways. And there's a lot of mechanics out there that are catching on. You know, I think our stand team is fantastic with encouraging that, mm-hmm. you know, that training of uh, challenging yourself a little bit more and um, be better every flight. So, I take it. offense to that beach flying comment, by the way, because <laughs> when you go for a PAW search, That's they want you down at hundred feet, feet. Yep. and you got to be looking for training. people and stuff. And yeah, oh, you absolutely. can't do that from it's good 500 training. feet. Able That's absolutely birds. good training. Everything absolutely. in the name of the training. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Scott, sir, Absolutely. Commander. Thanks uh, for having retired. me. Um, it's been awesome. And uh, I think our listeners will enjoy this. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Guard the coast. We yeah. will. We'll carry the torch for you. Yeah.